Republicans know they need to counter-program the Democratic proposal. And I think this is going to lead to good things. I don't think, you know, planting a trillion trees and saying innovation is enough. But this is what we wanted to see. Democrats pushing one way, Republicans, you know, realizing they have a problem and then finding a sweet spot in the middle where, you know, unlike uh, members of Congress can find a solution that solves our problem and lets everyone feel like they got a political win. What the heck happened in Iowa and how did climate change play in the first state to vote in the presidential primaries? Meanwhile, House Democrats have unveiled a policy roadmap to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Is this the kind of bold climate leadership that advocates have been calling for? And not to be left out, Republicans are floating their own climate plan that focuses on innovation. But is it the kind of innovation that the planet needs, or is it a smokescreen, a good first step, or pure optics? All of that coming up on this week's episode of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. With me on the line is Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. And we have Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. All right, guys, we're back recording in real time. Uh, I'm back in Los Angeles after a month on the road in Abu Dhabi, Kenya, and India. So we're all much closer now, although still not quite in the same place. Uh, Brandon, you are not in LA. You are in DC right now, I believe. Is that right? That's right. I was just in Iowa for the caucus, which I know we'll talk about. I'm in DC for some Green New Deal meetings. Um, I miss you guys. Can't wait to we're all back in the same place at the same time. I know. And Shane, you are technically in the L.A. area, but still very far away from me uh, over there in the valley of Los Angeles. No, not in the valley. But uh, but yes, I am uh, in the greater Los Angeles area. I was actually in D.C. last week. And I'm so excited to talk about uh, what was going on in Iowa. And I'm excited to see you guys and talk about this more, because one of the things I noticed is working in this field, you'd think that someone like me would be highly engaged. And during the Iowa caucuses and during the State of the Union, I was coaching my kids sports. Um, I was driving them around. I didn't see either of these things live and I was recording news to catch up later. And it just reminded me that that's probably most people. Most people probably don't hang on these dates on the calendar like I do. And even though I do, I didn't watch these things. So getting into the election, it, it, I'm trying Maybe to retrain most people myself. in the valley. I mean, wherever this. you are. <laughs> yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Um, Westlake Village, uh, but it's certainly not the valley um, by definition and by stigma. <laughs> but, but seriously, I, I think we all think like it's election season. Everyone cares. I hope all our listeners care, but people are busy. And I think that um, that sometimes I watch the news and I, I have too much of a sense of how engaged everyone else is on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I have to say one nice thing about traveling was being reminded that the U.S. election is not everything that matters in the world. But then returning home, I was totally consumed by it once again. So I'm in the camp that just cannot look away. And while a lot of people are justifiably focused on what's going on in their daily lives, the election will no doubt begin to creep in more and more as we near Election Day. 
And on that front, we got a first look at where voters stand this week in Iowa, albeit with a disastrous delay. So next, we're going to get Brandon's dispatch from the Hawkeye State. Then we're going to take a look at the House Democrats' Clean Future Act, which lays out a roadmap for reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Then we'll discuss Republican responses to Democrat climate action. We recently heard about a new proposal to plant trees, clean up plastic pollution, and invest in clean energy innovation. But what is the concept of innovation that Republicans are pushing? Is it the same as Democrats? And is there any room for agreement between these two approaches? All of that coming up, starting with what the heck happened in Iowa. We always knew the Iowa caucuses would make news, but nobody expected the biggest headline to be the actual caucus process. As we record this on Wednesday morning, we are still waiting to see the full and final results of Monday's contest due to inconsistencies in the results and coding issues with the Iowa Democrats' new reporting app, as well as phone line jams that cause frustration and long delays. There are three things we do know, though. First, President Trump easily won the Republican Iowa caucuses, which also took place Monday, although we should note it was not much of a race since he beat out two candidates running on small protest campaigns. Second, Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders are currently leading with uh, 10 Iowa delegates each. Third, we know that climate change was a top priority among Iowa Democratic caucus goers. More than one in five attendees said climate change mattered the most to them when deciding whom to support. That made the issue of rising global temperatures the second most important issue among Democratic Iowa voters after the perpetually important issue of health care. And that's according to an entrance poll conducted by Edison Media Research for The Washington Post and other media organizations. Brandon, you were in Iowa over the weekend and through the caucus process, uh, knocking on doors for Elizabeth Warren and representing her at one of the caucus events. So just give us your first overall reaction to what went down. It's been described in many terms, but um, one of them including a cluster. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I saw the best and the worst of democracy is my observation. Um, I knocked on over 300 doors in Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, So that was really interesting to have these conversations with uh, Americans who are living very different lives than we're living in Los Angeles where people are living in D.C., New York, San Francisco, I think on Zillow, you know, like the average, you know, net worth of the home um, is like eighteen thousand dollars in the neighborhood that I was knocking doors on. Um, I then went uh, to a caucus uh, to help administrate it for uh, the Warren supporters and did see firsthand, um, you know, the reporting issues with the new rules. Uh, because the Iowa Democratic Party wanted to release three different numbers, the first alignment, the second alignment, uh, then the state delegate equivalents, um, our caucus chairs, uh, there was confusion around that. Um, and they sort of administrated it how they want. We didn't have any speeches <laughs> at my caucus, um, but there, it was really interesting to see Americans persuading each other uh, in Iowa to try to recruit people to their side and um, you know, saw some observations about the different types of support. The Bernie momentum is very real. He had a very diverse coalition in his support group. Um, so I witnessed that firsthand. So, Brandon, uh, one of the things that I've been wondering, and I've been dying to talk to you, by the way, um, and just so our listeners know, we have not spoken since the uh, since the caucuses, is Iowa has 47 delegates. It's pretty worthless, especially when you consider that it's going to be divided up in several ways. 
So the value of putting money and time into Iowa is to get that press boost, the PR boost for your campaign to show donors and the general public, I'm the candidate that's viable. I'm the one who's got the momentum. I'm the one who's moving forward. No one got that just because of a procedural issue. I'm not blaming the candidates here. It was just a terribly run caucus. And as a result, no one got that win. So I think I read a $200 million were spent in Iowa. Obviously, a lot of man hours for the campaign. You always say that a candidate has no more valuable asset than their time. Do you think that this really hurt the field generally? Do you think it's a nothing burger? Or do you think two weeks from now, it'll be forgotten and everything will be you know business as usual? It's a lost opportunity. Um, and I'm sure that the candidates who are leading and put all that time in to win that support and wanted to talk about it and demonstrate it, uh, that's really um, a missed opportunity for them. And it's not their fault. Uh, I think... I think I attended the last Iowa caucus <laughs> for the Democrats. Like, I don't, I don't see how this continues um, because there are a number of issues that have always been, you know, with the caucus, you know, including like who can participate. Um, it takes many hours. Um, and so um, there are some really positive things about it where it really encourages neighbors to engage with each other. It gives candidates an opportunity who don't have like high name identification to be able to you know, generate support through retail politicking. President Obama probably doesn't become president without winning the Iowa caucus. So there are benefits to it, but there are a lot of downsides. And I think we saw all of that this week and I don't think it will continue in its current format. Yeah, on the messaging front, I think it, it really opened a door for President Trump to step in and critique the whole process and Democrats' ability to you know, govern and, and run things like say, healthcare websites, pointing back to the Obama era health healthcare website crash. So it definitely was not good on the messaging front. Another question that does come up there is actually turnout, because uh, Democratic turnout at the Iowa caucuses was relatively low, or at least lower than expected, which some people say could be a bad sign for Democrats in the general election. The caucuses were expected to draw record turnout, beating, say, 2008 or being on the level of 2008 turnout, but it actually was closer to 2016. Uh, and the number of first timers was lower than expected. So I don't know, Brandon, what is your read on that? A couple of things. I mean, I had conversations at the doors uh, and in Waterloo with people who wanted to caucus but could not. Like, we went to a little cafe, grabbed the sandwich, and our server. Uh, told us, you know, she was really excited about the caucus, but she was working that night. She couldn't go. There was a woman who I knocked on her door. She was an elderly woman. And she said, uh, I'd love to caucus, but I have to be in bed at 7 p.m. I cannot stay up that late. Uh, so there are a number of restrictions that have always been there that make it hard for certain people to uh, to participate. Uh, but I also, at many of the doors I was at, most of the doors that I knocked on, the voters were still undecided. And there was many of them that told me, uh, I am not going to caucus tonight because I can't decide. I think they were feeling that pressure and they just didn't want to deal with it. And so they decided not to caucus. That's what I heard on some of the doors. Speaking of not being able to decide, Brandon, my initial takeaway um, Monday night was that the biggest winner is Trump. The second biggest winner is Michael Bloomberg because he didn't spend all his time and energy there and has spent you know time and energy in other places that are going to be important as this race goes on. But then I thought... You know, when we all played this game online, uh, we were guessing, you know, who might get the most votes. And I went with Bernie. And my initial instinct, honestly, was Buttigieg. But I just couldn't picture a world 
where he got the most votes, whether it's because of his youth or lack of, you know, relative lack of name ID. But as I think about this more, I want to pose the question to you as a Democrat, is he a winner? Did he convince, you know, middle ground voters who might say, I kind of like him, but he's not viable, even though we didn't get that huge bounce on Monday night, that he is beating Bernie Sanders. Is that momentum as real as you just said, the, the Bernie momentum seems? So I'll talk about my precinct first and then overall. In my precinct, uh, which is um, heavily like minority precinct um, in in Iowa, uh, you had uh, in the in the Biden corner, it was mostly uh, older black voters, um, and then in the in the Bernie corner, I called it like the United Colors of Benetton. If you remember those ads, it was young, old, black, white, male, female, uh, straight, gay, everything, um, and so. Uh, and then in the Warren corner, they had built a really impressive field organization in Iowa. And the woman that we had uh, as the as the Warren precinct captain, uh, she was a older, you know, uh, African American woman who had worked at the local school where they had the caucus at, and she got her friends out. You know, she was a tremendous organizer. Annie Gates, she's one of the best, you know, best things about America. Served uh, at this elementary school for many decades. A lot of people knew her. She went out and organized, you know her community. And so uh, a lot of the Warren support came from, you know, my precinct from her strong organization there. And then you had, you know, Pete um, was a lot of uh, sort of the college educated whites. Um, and then you had a few people for Steyer, a few people for Klobuchar, a few, few people even for Andrew Yang. And so, uh, you know, on the first alignment vote, you know, uh, Bernie and um, Biden were strongest. And then we were able to go recruit from the other campaigns like Pete and Klobuchar and Yang and Steyer, and we got some other supporters come over. Uh, and so we were able to get a couple of delegates in my precinct. So it ended up being uh, Biden five, Bernie four, uh, and Warren two delegates in my precinct. But overall in the state, you know, we don't have all the results, which is a problem, uh, but it's showing, I think, that some of Biden's support went to Pete. That seems clear. But the, but the energy, I can tell you from, from what I saw out in the field, as far as who had a presence, like when I was knocking on the doors, like who had, you know, materials there, they had door hangers, uh, they had left literature, or what was happening in the caucus room, um, there was a lot of stuff out there for Bernie and Pete. Uh, so Pete clearly had been organizing. But in the caucus room, the real energy, the Bernie energy was amazing. I mean, they had their group was talking about the caucus party they had had over the weekend, like a big house party where they organized uh, and all like came out and had a good time together. And so there's there's something there for sure that I witnessed. Yeah, apparently Vampire Weekend played a concert in Iowa for Bernie and more people stayed for the Bernie speech and then actually left when the band came on. So like the real draw was Bernie, uh, which speaks to the momentum he currently has. Uh, but I think that momentum is going to be so key because, um, as we discussed, you know, the, the turnout was lower and turnout is going to be so important going forward. Can the candidate on the Democrat side mobilize new voters and young voters while turning out established Dems and maybe even some Republicans? That's what it's probably going to take to beat Donald Trump. So uh, we'll be watching to see what happens there. Uh, my final question to you, Brandon, on this is how climate and energy played in at all. Uh, I saw some pieces uh, in the news about uh, this issue coming up. Obviously, it, it, it polled quite high. Uh, but then there were just more anecdotal uh, 
stories about this coming up. NPR had a piece talking to a Iowa Republican farmer who not only was struggling due to more unpredictable weather, uh, likely due to climate change, but also taking a hit from Trump's trade war with China and China not purchasing uh, soy products. Also, uh, in fact, more than that, the farmer said what was really hurting him from the Trump administration was the decision to allow uh, exemptions to certain refiners under the renewable fuel standard. That's where refiners have to uh, blend in a certain number of gallons of ethanol and biodiesel. So I'm curious, did issues like that come up when you were when you were on the road? Did you hear that from any of the voters you knocked on doors with? So mo- most of the voters I talked to, um, it was about electability. Um, there were, I did hear from some women, they were wondering, you know, uh, based on the Hillary election, they liked Warren, you know, could she win uh, as a woman? That I definitely heard that at the door. My longest conversation was with uh, a gentleman who could be a, you know, Democratic Party caucus goer, uh, because when you get this list uh, to go knock on the doors, you know, they've gotten pretty sophisticated on the targeting on, on both sides, Republican and Democrat. So you're not hitting several of these homes on the block, you know, because they've determined that these people are not likely to caucus or likely to caucus for Democrat. So if you're talking to somebody, they're likely, you know, there's some evidence that they would come out and support a Democrat caucus. So this guy, he was on a farm. He had his overalls. I sent you guys the picture. It's most like Iowa caucus picture, you know, ever. It's like he's sitting there on the cold. It's like freezing. There's snow. And I'm talking to this, you know, farmer in his overalls. And he was so knowledgeable about the issues. He demonstrated a lot of like, um, you know, he had a lot of like expertise on trade. He was talking about trade. He was talking about, um, we talked about the wealth tax. Uh, he said, you know, he may have more money than I thought. And I said, well, you know, if it's under 50 million, you're fine. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, don't, don't worry. Uh, so um, there was not much that, you know, to be honest, that we agreed on when it came to immigration and some of these other issues. But he was a huge supporter of clean energy. He loved wind. He loved solar, loved, you know, electrification. Um, huge supporter of all of that. Wanted to see more. Uh, so that was my anecdotal, uh, you know, conversation about it. But it didn't didn't come up too much at the caucus. Some of the young folks I saw at the caucus, young women were uh, very interested in immigration and prison reform. Interesting. Well, I guess we'll wait and see what actually comes out of the Iowa caucuses. Brandon, are you going to New Hampshire? <laughs> no, I'm like a jinx. Uh, I'm afraid to go to New Hampshire <laughs> after after 08. <laughs> I have not stepped foot in that state uh, since since I was there for when we lost for Obama. So uh, I'm not going to jinx Elizabeth Warren with that. <laughs> Last month, Democratic leaders from the House Energy and Commerce Committee released draft text of their Climate Leadership and Environmental Action for Our Nation's Future Act, or the CLEAN Act, which lays out clear steps to reach net zero emissions by 2050. As our listeners may recall, we previewed this proposal last year in an exclusive interview with Representative Paul Tonko. House Democrats have now released a draft bill as well as a white paper that provides a framework for how they're going to achieve the net zero target. Some of the policies they've outlined include a federal clean electricity standard, vehicle performance standards, energy efficiency improvements, a national climate bank to finance technologies that reduce emissions, and buy clean programs to move the economy toward low carbon construction materials and products used in projects receiving federal funds. 
Brandon, I want to go to you first. Do you feel like this House Democrat proposal hits all the right marks? Is this the kind of uh, comprehensive legislation that you think, say, the youth groups might get behind? What is your read? I think it's a good start. The Just remember how far we've come as Democrats on this issue. I mean, anything that reflects what the scientists say we need to get to to avoid the worst impact of climate change, I think is worth um you know, working on. And so to the goal of net zero by 2050 um, is, is an important goal. Some people want it to be 2030, um, but we're a long way away from a Democratic nominee for president last time, Hillary Clinton, who refused to endorse carbon tax or none of this type of stuff was on the table uh, at all. So this is uh, good progress that the Democrats are proposing more ambitious goals um, that would help uh, meet what the scientists say we need to do to address climate change. Uh, so I think there's a lot of good stuff in there that is will you know that is worthy of like uh, being a part of the conversation. Um, and I am here in DC uh, for Green New Deal meetings, so I'll know a lot more about what uh, the community is thinking about that legislation. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a big proposal, and I mean, certainly Republicans would balk at that. Um, there's a lot of detail in there too, which I think. People are still waiting to see from the Green New Deal camp, if you will, how they would flesh out that proposal. So it seems like you wouldn't want to ignore things like a federal clean electricity standard. I'm curious to see how the Democrats on on you know the more progressive side and more moderate side come together and what their platform is going to be. Because I feel like some of the solutions will end up being quite similar uh, and even then hard to swallow on the Republican side. In Europe, I'll just add real quick, Europe is moving forward with many of those same policies. Um, and so it'll be uh, they're moving faster than we are. And it'll be interesting to see how some of those policies work in Europe. For sure. Uh, Shane, what does what was your read on the Democrat proposal? So it, it was big and long. And I actually read it, believe it or not, which takes forever because you have to cross reference all the statutes cited in, in the legislative text and all that. I'm excited about it conceptually and sort of the tango that's going on with Republicans and others in the meantime. I am in no way advocating that anyone puts this bill on the floor and votes on it, but I don't think Democrats plan to do that right now. They have it marked as a discussion draft, and some of the concepts in there are worth considering. And I think some of the concepts in there, Republicans need to take a step back and say, we might not want to put this bill on the floor and pass it. But this is actually a path forward that we should be talking to coalitions about, talking to industry about, talking to our colleagues about, because if there is a Democratic president, what people need to understand, Republicans need to understand, courts have basically said that the clean power plan is no good because it gave flexibility. It regulated outside the fence line, which is not permitted by the Clean Air Act. And so a future regulatory scheme would require facility by facility regulations, which would basically make fossil fuel uh, facilities, even state-of-the-art ones, completely obsolete. This bill, in contrast, basically rewards utilities or what they call electric uh, suppliers for where they are. It doesn't say everyone needs to be at 30% by 2030 and 40% by 2050 or whatever. <clears throat> I mean, it does get down to 100% by 2050, but it basically makes them go one twenty eighth of the way from where they are to one hundred percent by twenty fifty, and that that actually provides a lot of flexibility. You can buy credits, uh, you can pay for offset compliant credits from the government. And if I'm a Republican looking at this, I'm saying this does not seem that unreasonable in certain parts. 
and let's work with it and and provide a counter proposal. Because right now, as you guys know, Republicans are talking about planting a trillion trees, which is fantastic. Um, but that's not gonna gonna I think solve our climate problem or or satisfy people who want climate solutions. So uh, I don't want to talk too long. I have more to say on this, but my initial reaction is there's something to work with here. Well, just to put a finer point on that, we'll get to the trees in a moment. What precisely do you think could get traction among Republicans? Yeah, so I think what should resonate with Republicans and will begin to once they realize what the alternatives are. See, they're living in a, in a world where the alternative to something like this is nothing at all. And I think soon they're going to realize, based on the investment community, uh, election cycles that go every two years, regardless of you know what happens this year, the reality is it's going to be something like this or some restrictive regulation that doesn't allow any wiggle room to make sure that the economics of these projects line up. So I think that they will learn to find concepts like the clean energy standard in this bill attractive when they understand that the alternative is not the status quo. The alternative is something far more restrictive. Interesting. Well, I want to take a moment to highlight that last month, Political Climate launched our new monthly series, Path to Zero, with the Washington, D.C. think tank Third Way, which explores how to reach net zero emissions, not only technologically, but also with the right policies and approaches that engage, say, labor groups or disadvantaged communities. So we'll be rolling out several more of those episodes over the coming months. And you can listen to the first two episodes, including our interview with Brandon's former boss, Nobel Prize laureate and former Energy Secretary Stephen Chu on the Political Climate podcast feed. So wanted to put in a reminder and a plug there. Brandon, any additional thoughts on this uh, House Democrat net zero proposal? I'm excited to work through it this week while I'm in D.C. I mean, again, I think it's uh, it's a good start and um, anxious to dig in more with uh, many of the stakeholders who will be a part of this. Julia, before we move on, one thing I want to point out to our listeners is what's not in here. Um, I don't understand why Democrats who are always willing to, you know, bestow the federal government with some sort of power are so afraid to push states to do the right thing. Like there's a lot of language in here where states must consider allowing, you know, utilities to upgrade uh, their infrastructure to better allow electrification or decarbonization. But no one seems willing on either side of the aisle to just update PURPA and other laws to require states to be more forward-looking in these ways. And I don't know why it's such a sacred cow, but you'd think this particular set of Democrats would be as willing as anyone to put a little more pressure downward on the states. And, and this bill doesn't do that either. Hmm. Pressure downward on the states. What would, what would be a way in which they could do that? So, for example, you could say uh, we have this 100% clean energy by 2050 and state, you know, public utility commissions or public service commissions or whatever they're called in, in this specific state, states must approve rate cases that bring electric suppliers closer to compliance with this act rather than must consider if, let's say, you know, a SoCal Edison said, we want to replace these fossil fuel uh, assets. I, I don't think they have any left, but but just by way of example, we want to build this um, utility scale storage asset. We want to provide customers with behind the meter solutions. We want to offset uh, capital investments with with non wires alternatives. 
or operating expenditures that technically wouldn't qualify for rate recovery, that if that gets them closer to meeting the federal standard, then they must be uh, permitted. Whereas the must consider, a PUC can just say, well, we considered it and we don't want to do it. Uh, Shane, that's a really interesting point that you made. And tonight while I'm in DC, I'm going to be having a drink with a member of Congress uh, who's a friend and is working on these issues. And uh, I'll get his I'll get his take on it. Yeah, I'm curious because at a certain point they're they're doing all the right things. They're saying all the right things. The areas where they're saying, you know, states must consider or regulators must consider. They're getting at the right things. They're looking at EV infrastructure. They're looking at non-wires alternatives. There's just not a forcing mechanism. Interesting. Meanwhile, I should note that uh, Arizona Public Service, the largest utility in that state, has voluntarily committed to 100% carbon-free power by 2050. So uh, to your point, maybe the bill needs to include some more uh, restrictions and, and mandates, if you will. But interesting to see utilities stepping up on their own. And APS has a history of pushing back against at least distributed solar in its territory. And now you have the utility stepping up saying, we don't even know how we're going to quite hit this target but we're going to set it and we're going to get there. So major tectonic shift from where we were even just a few years ago. Yeah. And keep in mind, Julie, utilities want to do this stuff, but they need permission from their regulators. And that's where I'm talking. I'm not talking about more mandates on every company that provides electricity. I'm talking about forcing states to be responsive to what these utilities are trying to do, which is decarbonize and increase their clean energy portfolios. I wonder if they're trying to walk the line between doing that and like setting it up where it's anti-competitive, where a utility could crowd out some of the private sector innovation uh, that's happening. I don't know, but uh, I'd like to find out. Yeah. And I wonder if there are jurisdictional issues there. Like, Can Congress just say all state level PUCs must do X, Y, Z without sort of infringing on their rights as elected officials in many states? I don't know. That seems like an open question to me. You're hitting it on the head. That's why um, they don't do it. But it is not illegal. It's not unconstitutional. I mean, the, the Commerce Clause certainly allows the federal government to pass laws that dictates what states must do if it interacts with interstate commerce. I mean, that's we do this in every sector, healthcare and everything else. But you're right. The jurisdictional issue is why they don't do it. But they're not prohibited from doing mm-hmm. it. All right. Good point. Shane, the Republican calling for bolder action from Democrats to tell yes. state level PUCs <laughs> what to do. Well, true, or Republicans or anyone. Yes, wow. Anyone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, super interesting discussion. We'll have to see. Uh, we'll have to circle back with you, Brandon, on how that uh, proposal lands in, in D.C. when you're there this week. Uh, I want to shift now to the Republican sort of proposal, if you will. It was brought up in an interview with Axios, uh, where House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California, uh, along with Representatives Garrett Graves uh, and Bruce Westerman, uh, sat down with the publication Axios, and they outlined a three-pronged plan that would reduce emissions. And this is really coming in response to all these Democratic proposals that have been coming out. And they said they wanted to, one, capture carbon dioxide emissions with a focus on trees, as Shane mentioned, two, invest in clean energy innovation, three, invest in conservation with a focus on plastic. 
These elements are reportedly being worked into legislation, and on the face of it, planting trees, picking up plastic, and investing in clean energy innovation all sound like good things. But Republicans say their plan will not set any targets for reducing carbon pollution, which could be a sticking point. They won't set a goal such as reaching net zero by 2050. Also, I think the clean energy innovation piece will be controversial. I think it's fair to say experts across the climate and energy space agree that there needs to be more innovation to drive carbon emissions out of the system. But the type of innovation that Republicans are talking about does not enjoy universal support. Specifically, they want to set a new goal to double federal investment in basic research and fundamental science and introduce a new proposal to provide lower tax rates for U.S. companies exporting clean energy technology, which would include natural gas and nuclear technology. So, Shane, let's go to you first to talk about what you think this signifies. Oh, yeah, I I think it's great. I mean, first, it signals that they understand they have a political problem. Put aside a climate problem. They understand they have a political problem. When we started talking about the Clean Futures Act, I said, I'm excited more about the tango than the bill. And so moving to the Republican side, Republicans know they need to counter program the Democratic proposal. And I think this is going to lead to good things. I don't think you know, planting a trillion trees and saying innovation is enough. But Republicans are basically saying, we want to innovate. We don't want uh, top-down regulation. And Democrats are saying, we're setting the bar right now at zero carbon, clean electricity. Uh, and we don't, you know, we, we agree with your innovation thing. And so what I love is, is like the McKinley uh, Schrader uh, proposal. And just for our audience, David McKinley is a Republican from West Virginia. He has probably been the most outspoken coal advocate in Congress. He was a coal engineer prior to to being a member of Congress. And um, Kurt Schrader is a Democrat from Oregon, which is hardly a conservative state. And their proposal basically calls the bluff of both sides and says, innovation's great. You both seem to say that, uh, but we need a solution. And you both seem to say that. So their proposal basically says, Let's provide incentives, funding, um, all sorts of leeway to innovate anything you can in the next 10 years. And in that time, uh, you're not going to have any new regulations layered upon there. But from 2030 to 2050, you need to use that technology that you created or commercialized to get to 80% clean electricity by 2050, which is not that far off the 100% that Democrats are proposing. I love that approach because it says, you're okay, if, if innovation works and it solves our problem entirely, then the 2050 goal is no problem because you guys will solve it with innovation. But if it doesn't, that's the backstop. So there's no saying innovation, 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 and then in 10 years coming back and saying, whoops, no, we're not going to do anything. I, I like this proposal. I don't think that's going to become law, but this is what we wanted to see. Democrats pushing one way, Republicans, you know, realizing they have a problem and then finding a sweet spot in the middle where, you know, unlike uh, members of Congress can find a solution that solves our problem and lets everyone feel like they got a political win. Under that bipartisan proposal you mentioned, though, the McKinley-Schrader one, uh, what happens in that 10-year sort of innovation period? Does that de-emphasize deployment? I feel like there's a lot of angst around focusing so much on innovation, especially early stage innovation, that it takes the momentum out of action in the near term. Well, I think these technologies need to be integrated during that time frame. You can't do nothing for 10 years and then meet an aggressive goal 10 years from now. I think the idea is 
what kind of innovation will be integrated into our systems and how much will it or won't it help? Um, you know, you said earlier, Julie, I think when we were talking offline, so they just get rid of all regulations. Truth is, there are none, right? The clean power plan got held up in the courts. So you're not really sacrificing anything. You're just not doing anything new for 10 years, which, you know, may or may not happen with or without legislation like this. Yeah, I mean, the clean power plan is one set of regulations. I think there are others people would be worried about across the sort of span of energy and environment regulation. So yeah, does it eliminate cafe for 10 years? Like, how does that work? Yeah, fuel economy. I mean, standards? I guess that's the beauty of a legislative framework, right? You don't you don't have to answer those questions. Yeah. <laughs> And one more question for you, Shane. What is your definition of innovation? Because I think, again, Republicans are being asked to define what they mean here. When you think of it, does it have to do with making fossil fuels less carbon intensive? Or is it about clean energy technologies and supporting the shift away from fossil fuels? Is it about basic research, which has been a focus for the Trump administration? Or do you think it's more about deployment innovation and finding ways to get solutions into the field faster? And so I'm curious, how do you define that word? I mean, I think of innovation as anything new that helps us get closer to solving our objective. I think a lot of Republicans think about innovation in two ways and then maybe a third. I mean, the first is you look at carbon emissions um, being reduced over the last decade. And what Republicans will point out is a lot of this is due to um, innovation in the gas production industry, hydraulic fracturing and displacing coal with gas. I realize that's not what environmental advocates want, but I think Republicans view that as market innovation that reduced emissions. I think they look at things like carbon capture and other technologies that allow you to continue to use fossil fuels, but use them in a way that's either less carbon intensive or zero carbon. But I do think a lot more Republicans are also lining up behind a third bucket, which is more efficient solar, more efficient wind, more efficient storage, integrating these systems into the power sector. So I think it's in all of the above, but certainly you're right that a lot of Republicans want to use innovation to prolong the life of fossil fuels, which I don't see why we wouldn't do if there are abundant resources that can be used without emitting any carbon. Right. I think that's where the kind of conflict comes down because there is sort of a finite set of or there's a limited amount of money out there, at least government money. And so what does that go toward? Is it keeping natural gas in the system for, you know, for the long term? Uh, or is it coming up with alternatives that can really get us off of fossil fuels entirely? Noting also that fossil fuels, you know, come with other environmental concerns for water and land, etc. So that's where I think increasingly we're going to see that tension. Uh, Brandon, do you have any other thoughts on the on the Republican proposal? Yeah, I mean, I didn't like the way it was, you know, framed where it was the Republican sports innovation, the Democrat sports regulation, and they're going to compromise because I think Democrats support both. Uh, we had, you know, Secretary Chu on the show. He talked a lot about innovation. Democrats want to invest in innovation. They support it. Uh, we also need to use certain regulatory tools to advance this. And we also need to use uh, deployment uh, tools. We cannot wait 10 years to start deploying this these technologies, these clean technologies at scale. Um, so uh, I'm glad to hear that Shane, um, uh, you know, thinks that this is evidence of movement in the Republican Party because we need that. Uh, definitely um, different than where they've been and just denying that the problem even exists. So that is progress. Um, but I'd still like to see uh, more. 
Yeah, I think the tree element, though, is a little misleading. And I just want to take a second on that because it also came up last night in President Trump's State of the Union speech where he uh, highlighted his commitment to the One Trillion Trees Initiative, which he first committed to at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And trees, of course, planting them is great. It does help to sequester carbon. Trees do sequester carbon. But the amounts as I understand it are huge that you would have to to plant of new trees to actually offset U.S. carbon emissions, something to the effect of two Texases worth of trees would have to be planted. And that's just not feasible. At the same time, the Trump administration is looking to cut down existing older forests in Alaska on, on national land there, on federal land there. So that would obviously work at odds of their supposed climate goal. And those older forests are really the key here. They already have so much carbon sequestered in them. So by cutting them down, it's uh, especially damaging. Um, And older trees can sequester more. They're larger. It takes a small tree like 25 years even to get it to its full sort of carbon capture potential. So I think we need to delve deeper in this into this tree proposal and not just take it at face value because one trillion trees sounds huge, but it's still not enough. All right. Any other thoughts on trees? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think if you guys are being honest with yourselves, the way Republicans are talking about climate is very different than when we started this podcast. I mean, I know that they're not doing the things that, um, that, that you want to see done, but honestly, the fact that even Minority Leader McCarthy has gathered the caucus and said, we need a response. We need to show our constituents that we're addressing climate. That was unthinkable three years ago. Totally agree on that front. No, the discussion has absolutely shifted. I think what is so key here is, is it a move to show constituents that they are engaged and that's kind of where it ends? Or is this a genuine effort to actually reduce carbon emissions in a meaningful way? Because the way that votes have gone in the past indicates that Republicans are not actually ready to legislate on this yet. So that's where the criticism, I think, still comes from. Great ideas and the discussion has shifted, but people, I think, are ready for the discussion to move to actual Action. No, no, I agree. I think it's the prior. I think it's convincing voters more so than taking votes. But one thing leads to the next. The reason they're trying to convince voters is because their polling is showing them that voters care. Um, the tail wags the dog here, and it, they wouldn't pay lip service to it if they didn't think they were exposed on it, which means the next step is actually having to do something at some point. Yeah, it's just that stuff has to happen sooner rather than later. It's sort of like you know, if you were overweight and you were weighed 350 pounds, the doctor said, you know, you had to get down to 200 pounds uh, to avoid serious health concerns saying like, well, I'm thinking about a diet, you know, I am not, you know, I don't deny it anymore. At some point you got to start losing the weight. (laughs) Sure. Sure. But, but, you know, if you say (laughs) I'm not quite ready to change my diet, but I'm going to stop drinking beer. You know, if someone like me, for example, (laughs) came up with that resolution, um, does it make me fit? No, but it certainly helps while I figure out what to do next. (laughs) Somehow I think that's going to not be the first thing you do, Shane. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say I gave up alcohol, to be clear. Just beer. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Just beer. (laughs) 
Well, what are you going to drink at LAFC, Shane? What, you know, it's free beer. What do you? What are you I don't do? know if you noticed, but towards the end of the year, I started enjoying that canned wine, that classy canned wine they have there. So, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to, you know, try to do what I can. It's baby steps. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time to wrap up our show with our final segment, which is Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something redeeming about the opposing political party, which might be difficult on today of all days. Uh, Brandon, do you want to give it a shot? No. Uh, the vote last week on <laughs> no. witnesses was, I think, something that uh, is very damaging for in the In the Senate impeachment trial? Yes. You know, the, the refusal to allow John Bolton to share his evidence uh, in this trial. And then today they're going to acquit the president. So I'm in a dark, dark place. Uh, Shane has uh, been nice enough to not, he's taken all my slack rants and (laughs) 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 but I I don't, uh, I don't have anything nice to say today. He apparently was just too busy taking his kid to sports practice to really care. (laughs) No, no, no. I I see it all. I I understand. And I, I, there's a lot, to digest, I think for all of us, um, my say something nice is to uh, Kirsten Cinema, Democratic senator from Arizona. I've always liked her. I don't know why. Um, she just always seems very positive. But uh, last night, she was about the only Democrat that I saw clapping during the parts of the speech that were, you know, unifying. Even if we believe that the intent was not unifying. I always get frustrated, and this is both sides. I'm not blaming Democrats. When a president of either party says like, you know, thanks to our veterans, they're so helpful, and half the room just doesn't clap because the person they said it, uh, they don't like. And so I did see her several times scowl at the president, but I also saw her cheer for our country, and I just think we could all use a little bit more of that. Yeah, it was one of the most uh, divisive State of the Union speeches uh, I think in a long time. Uh, but yeah, there's certainly things that I think people agree on. And it's nice to be reminded of that. Um, I came back from India with terrible food poisoning and the border guard said, welcome home. And I almost cried because I was so excited to have drinkable water. <laughs> and uh, Good thing and you're not from Flint, to- Julia. Yeah, well, well, exactly. I mean, we have access to this natural resource, which other places in the world just don't. So first, we shouldn't take that for granted. And at the same time, you know, why let this precious resource become contaminated? I think, you know, especially with human health on the line. Uh, it, it was a wake up call both to, to how lucky uh, we are here in North America, but also, you know, the important actions we have to take in order to manage our resources better. Anyway, glad to be home. Glad to be back talking to you guys. Uh, That's our show for this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, more great content. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Remember, you can find Political Climate on pretty much any podcasting service. You can also find our new Path to Zero series with Third Way on our podcast feed. And you can reach out to us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. So do that. We want to hear from you. Leave us a review for now. Until next time.